Welcome to Passion Life Church. Now, most of you uh, know me or you've seen me before. My name is Lindsay, Lindsay Evans, and my wife is Gina. We are part of the leadership team here uh, at Passion Life Church and together with other people that are part of the, of the leadership team. And so our pastor has asked me to do the preach today. So, well, here I am. And I, I want to speak to you today about promoting and proclaiming the coming of Jesus, the King. Now, today is traditionally celebrated and recognized as Palm Sunday. Some people put great store on it, others don't. Some people feel that it's important to celebrate it. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is that we are going to be remembering the fact that Jesus had a triumphal entry. And it is mentioned in, I think, all of the Gospels, at least three of them, uh, that I'm aware of, where Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem as a fulfillment of prophecy from uh, the prophet Zechariah uh, riding upon the colt of a donkey. And uh, it was something that Jesus himself orchestrated because uh, he had said to his disciples, go and find the donkey tied up there and bring it. And if some, someone says to you, what are you doing? Tell him that the master has need of him and, and bring him along and I'm gonna be seated upon him. And I think the crowd had, had gathered in order to just come and celebrate and to see Lazarus. If you study the Gospel of John, you'll see the, the uh, chronology or the order of events was that uh, Lazarus had been raised from the dead and so it was a, a, an incredible event, a, a notable happening that had occurred and possibly a lot of the crowd that were there were, were there to, were, had turned out to come to see this person who had been in the tomb for four days and had been miraculously called out of the tomb, raised from the dead. And so they were there and, and they were like in the procession. Jesus got on top of the donkey and the procession proceeded uh, there into the great city of Jerusalem. And then out of the city poured a whole lot of other people to come and meet him. So people behind him, following him, and people in front of him coming out to meet him, cutting down the palm leaves of the trees and throwing them in the path of Jesus, taking off their garments, throwing them down, uh, saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And I want you just in your mind's eye to imagine that scene, a great scene of triumph and of praise and of worship and, and adoration of this king. And, and that's quite amazing because in all of Jesus's ministry, you will remember that very often when he did things, he did them kind of in obscurity. When people were healed, he said, go and don't tell anyone about it. When he uh, turned the, 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 the uh, loaves and the, and the fishes and, and multiplied and, and fed the multitude, uh, he got into a, a boat and went across the lake to the other side. Uh, he, he often did this in obscurity. 
But here he was accepting the fact that the people of Jerusalem were now going to be welcoming their coming king. But having said all that, I think it was kind of a misfire, and I don't mean to be demeaning of the event, it was a great event, and one that we celebrate and, and, and that we remember. But it was a kind of a misfire in that a lot of the people, I think, had a misplaced and a misdirected uh, attitude towards Jesus. I think that they thought that he was going to be a political emancipator or liberator. He was going to come and break the Roman yoke. He was going to be in the mold of King David and, and subdue the nations round about and make them subservient to Palestine and to the nation of Israel. That is what, is what was on their minds, I think, and even one of Jesus' very own disciples, one of the 12, Simon, not, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot, Simon Zelotes, as he was known, he himself was a zealot, and a, and a zealot was kind of a guy that wanted to see the overthrow of the Roman uh, oppression and rule by military means. He was part of a militia before he came to know Jesus and before he followed Jesus and responded to Jesus. And so maybe even that was in the minds of some of those that were in the closest circle of Jesus, that this was going to be a political Messiah who would ascend the throne and who would, who would at last break the stranglehold that the Roman oppressor had over them. And I think that as they thought about that, this misdirected uh, attitude about who Jesus was and what his ministry entailed, that very soon after that, there was going to be great disappointment because people in that same crowd must have been in the crowd that were watching with shock and awe at Jesus carrying the cross through Jerusalem and out to the, bound, uh, the outer boundaries of the city and there were jeers and there was spitting and there was mocking and there was abuse as Jesus carried his cross. It wasn't long after. So the same people who were so thrilled and excited about welcoming him in, in this triumphal procession, would soon be engaged in, at the very least, wanting to distance themselves from him, not wanting to, to support in any way, shape, or form what was trans, transpiring. As the political leaders and the religious leaders of the day conspired and put Jesus to trial and put him every, through everything that he endured and the beatings and the plucking of the beard and then finally condemning him to death and finally crucifying him upon a cross, those same people kind of were strangely nowhere to be found. So that's why I say that the triumphal entry is, is, is kind of a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that, that the people really didn't know what they were cheering. But when Jesus had finished his work upon the cross and when he rose again from the dead and when he ascended to the Father, the psalmist, many, many hundreds of years before 
composed a psalm which I think should typify the real triumphal entry. And we're going to look at that up on the board here in a moment and just see how prophetically David wrote about Jesus' entry, I think. In my opinion, it's a prophetic statement of Jesus after he had finished his work upon the cross and after his resurrection ascended into glory. Can you just travel with me in your mind's eye? Just imagine, use your, your imagination a little bit this, this morning. And as Jesus ascends and goes to the Father to pre present his credentials, as it were, the finished work of what he had done before the Father, all of heaven, every heavenly being, every angelic being there in heaven must have been ready to give praises and glory to Jesus who had fought the battle against the devil and against the enemy when he died upon the cross and was now coming to present to God what was God's purpose all in the beginning. And that was to provide a salvation for you and I so that we could come to know him. We who, who were estranged, we who were afar, afar off as the scripture says. We who were separated from God. In, in one passage of Scripture, it says that we were, we were enemies of God. Jesus did what he did in order to bridge that gap, in order to reconcile us to God. And as he came after that finished work, this is what greeted him. Lift up your heads, O you gates. The gates of heaven, I think, is what has been spoken about there. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then it goes on to say, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be ye lift up your everlasting doors. And the King of glory, who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. That word hosts just simply means armies. So there's a militaristic uh, emphasis that has been made here. Jesus did battle. There was nothing about militarism in Jesus' ministry. He said, you know, if I wanted to overthrow the, government, the, the governing powers of the day, then my servants would fight. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus specifically said. But his Battle was a battle in the spirit. And he did battle with our enemy, the devil. And I think that the highest degree of uh, a victor over the vanquished is the fact that the victor can meet his enemy on his own grounds and on his own terms and with his own weapons and come out the victor over the enemy. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Through death he destroyed him that had the power over death, over the devil. And this is his incoming into heaven. I can just imagine the hallelujahs. I can imagine the praises. I can imagine every being with upraised arms welcoming him in after having done battle with the devil. And so... My, my ministry this morning is about 
is about promoting and proclaiming the Lord Jesus, the coming King. And I want to just segue at, 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 the, at, at this point because there they were proclaiming him in the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. They were proclaiming him. But it is our ministry and it is our mandate and it is our calling to be those who also proclaim and promote the coming king. And there wasn't anyone who did this in a greater and in a more perfect manner than John the Baptist. And so I'm going to just segue away from the whole story of the triumphal entry and just point you to one who did this the very best. And there's a passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And I'm just going to read this quickly and you can follow it uh, on the screen. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, I'm going to read it, read it quick because it's uh, quite a little bit to get through. Tiberius Caesar Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of the Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene and Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh, that's all nations, all people, shall see the salvation of God. So here was, we could say, the singular purpose of John the baptizer or John the Baptist. And that was that he was focused on this one way to prepare the way for Jesus. And so that preparation had to do with the first coming. And if we are going to fulfill a John the Baptist type of ministry, which I believe we are called to, then we also must prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. I think world events and the chaos that is evident in our world today seem to point to the fact that that coming is so near at hand. And our duty, our call, our mandate is more than just uh, looking at our own lives and, and being challenged about self-improvement. And, and I'm not diminishing that. That is very good. We must improve in our marriages. We must improve in our prayer lives. We must improve in our relationships. We must improve in being able to control ourselves and, and uh, our tempers and, 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 and matters such as that. We, we, we've got to focus on that. We, we, we must improve on our finances and our attitude toward giving. We must improve in learning how to better open ourselves up to worship, etc., etc. But having said all that, in addition to that, I am here this morning to challenge you 
that, it is, that God's plan, that God's purpose, that his kingdom is far bigger than just a personal, individual focus upon ourselves. We're not here just to do that. We're here to be those who promote his kingdom, who proclaim about Jesus. And so, you know, there are so many passages of Scripture in the New Testament, I think, particularly of, of uh, Paul's analogies. Paul uses a lot of analogies. You know, sometimes he uses a bride, other times he uses a household, etc., etc. But he also uses the analogy of a body. And so you are the body of Christ. And that body has no geographical boundaries. It doesn't stop at Murrieta. It doesn't stop at this local church. Uh, it, 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 it extends right across our globe. And that church comprises of every person who has had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ who has become born again because they realize that they're cut off from God, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the way Paul describes it. And they kind of need, I like to use the analogy of, you know, a dead battery that's happened to me quite a few times in uh, Gina and my life, where the battery goes dead for some reason, usually my own fault for leaving something on that shouldn't have been left on, leaving the keys and the ignition on the on uh, position. And then I've got to get some help from my brother-in-law. Come over and charge the battery. And he brings his own nice big truck and he puts the cables and the poles on, 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 on his, um, en- on, with his engines running on his batteries and clicks them onto my dead battery and a charge surges in and the battery that was absolutely lifeless and dead, it wouldn't respond to anything, suddenly comes to life again. Folks, that's what we, that's what we all have needed at one point in our lives. Not, not just how can I be a better person, but I need the power of God, I need the surge of God. I don't know how that actually happens in the correct order. The theologians have got all kinds of theories. This happens first, that happens second and third, and then at the end you come out as a child of God. What I'm saying is there's repentance involved here, there's conviction of sin, there's confession, there's receiving Christ and the Holy Spirit coming into your heart, etc., etc. I don't know how that all happens. And quite frankly, I'm not really all that interested in figuring it out. But what I do know is when you hear the wonderful gospel of the grace of God, because he came full of grace and truth, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It kind of of prepared us or prepared his listeners for Jesus who was to come. And and John, at one point in time, would point to Jesus in the the, the River Jordan and say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we don't only need repentance. We need what what theological people and scholars, and I'm not here to try and impress you, but they call regeneration, the battery thing. We need the power surge to come in and bring life where there was death in our hearts. 
The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins before that happens. And yes, there's repentance as part of this. In Latin, they call it ordo salutis. In other words, the order of how it comes, and I don't know which one comes before the other, and I'm not interested. But as the power of God comes into us, we become a child of God. And we're part of this great body of people all over the world. And we're called to proclaim. We're called to welcome and to promote the coming king. And you know, if we're the body, and the Bible says, if you're a born again person, wherever you are, not one denominational group, but wherever someone has had that life-changing transformation and encounter with King Jesus in their lives where they realized, I cannot live life to the full, I cannot have any peace or satisfaction about uh, my eternal state unless I come to know Jesus. When you've come to realize that, you're part of that body. And the Bible says members in particular. So, you know, the Bible speaks about, well, Paul speaks about a hand and a foot and an eye and an ear, etc., etc. But we all comprise this body. But if the body is unhealthy, if the body is sickly, if the body is diseased in any kind of a way, usually what happens physiologically you can't really lift up your head. The head droops. The head has got to be placed on the pillow and take a rest and recover. So what I'm saying is we need to be a healthy body if we're going to fulfill this John the Baptist-like ministry. And our duty is what John's duty was, to lift up Jesus, to point to him and say, he must increase, but I must decrease. Don't you think that that is the, the most authentic characterization of, 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 of a truly prophetic uh, message to our generation is one that where Jesus is exalted and we are subservient, where he is the king, where he is exalted, where he is lifted up. You know, that's, that's what the kingdom of God is about. We serve in this kingdom, and this kingdom is wonderful, and the, the highest and the greatest expression of the kingdom is the church. That's the greatest expression. But it's great, the kingdom is even greater than the church itself because we see expressions of the kingdom all about in society. We see it in the movie industry. People speaking out, not many voices, but they are there. We, speak it, we see it in intelligentsia and in our, university, in, in, in our universities and amongst our academics. Not many voices, but it is there. We see it in the sports field, the kingdom of God being expressed by people who are not afraid to come out and say what they believe. I love that guy, I really do. That guy, Tim, Tim Tebow, uh, you probably heard of him, a football player and a baseball player. And, and, and you know, he just, had to, he just was an incredible guy. He would take the knee and thank Jesus after he maybe had scored, scored in, a, in a match or something like that or hit a home run. And, and he didn't care what everyone else said. And controversy was raging around about them. Next time you see a picture of him, I've never seen him 
with an angry face or with an angry retort, always with a smile on his face, just this wonderful smile on his face, and he just carried on doing good. He carried on bringing the Christ-like culture to the culture of our society, to societal culture. And they would heap scorn upon him and want to boycott him and, 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 and want to see him kicked out of the various sports that he was engaged in. And the guy just carries on doing great and good things, smiling all the way and responding with grace to all of his uh, detractors. Incredible. And then there was on one occasion, some young lady didn't have a date to go to a prom. And, and I think she was a special needs person. And he stepped up and said, I'll take her. Or he arranged for someone to take her. I mean, just incredible. And, you know, th that's what the world is like. They, they think that, uh, that we are irrelevant. They want to sideline us. They want to just put us out there onto the, onto the periphery that we are irrelevant. It reminds me of the story of the little old donkey who had a great self-image, a donkey who had a great self-image. And as his owner said, I've got no need of you, little old donkey. I think I'm going to just throw you out, but I haven't got the courage to put a bullet through you, so I'm just going to toss you into this trash dump, into this pit here, and he tossed the donkey into the pit. And as time went on, people just threw the, the, the trash into the pit, threw everything that they didn't want into the pit. The donkey said, you know, I'm not going to just sit here and tolerate all of this thing. And when it landed on him, he just shook it off and he stamped it down. Threw it on him again the next day, shook, his, shook himself and stamped it down. And so on and so on. Eventually he had stamped so much of it down that he'd built himself a platform and stepped up with great pride, holding his head up high and said, I'm out of this pit. And that kind of must be the attitude when you feel people have lobbed things at you and, and, and degraded you and made you irrelevant as far as, be, as far as your Christian faith is concerned. Have something of that. So just like John the Baptist, we, we're custodians. Our pastor has spoken about the fact uh, that we're stewards. We're stewards of the things that God has given us. We're, we're to be, uh, uh, we have a mandate to fulfill. And as we do so, let me say this. Listen carefully to this. Please don't be overawed. Don't be, don't be, uh, feel inadequate, don't have feelings of unworthiness and say, you know what, I'll just let the Lord work in my life and, and I'm comfortable with the things that he's doing and I'm trying and I'm opening up myself to him. I believe that the Lord wants to put some boldness into us and, and he wants to do that without us being like necessarily in the face of everyone and being harsh and hard, but coupled together with, married together with, blended together with grace and, and wisdom. Uh, Tim Tebow, the other day, some guy had uh, used a blasphemous term or insulted something, and I didn't read the whole story, but his comeback apparently was just so gracious that they published it on Facebook. I didn't read it, so I don't know what the comeback was, but I can just imagine with such wisdom, 
The comeback was, was, was with grace and wisdom. So he never compromised himself. He still remained bold in his testimony. He still remained buoyant and full of joy, but dealt with this thing in his life in such a gracious way. And that's how we should be. When you read the testimony of the early church, they were filled with boldness, and we've got to get something of that back into the church again. There's too much navel-gazing where we're looking at the self-improvement angle. And, 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 and they're not contradictory, these things. It's good to have self-improvement because it helps our promoting of Jesus and our pro- proclamation of Jesus. That helps. But it mustn't only be self-improvement. It mustn't only be the navel-gazing. There's got to be a recognition that we have a role, that we have a function, that we are called, that we have a, ba- a John the Baptist prophetic-like ministry. And look, when, when, when I say the word prophetic, you know, some people say, well, you know, I'm just a, a, a novice Christian. Or I'm still new in, in the things of the Lord. And, and they, they feel inadequate. But prophecy, we mustn't complicate it too much. And I'm not talking about the eschatological side, about the details of when Jesus comes back. That's part of prophecy and maybe something for another day. But I'm talking about prophecy having a prophetic heart, having a prophetic character, having a prophetic voice in the world today, to to be able to be like the Tim Tebow's of society, to take the spheres of influence where we are, and we we don't have all of those uh, uh, um, amazing type of uh, uh, forums. We don't. But in the forum where you are, in your community, amongst your friends, amongst your families, your neighbor, at your school, uh, in your place of work, with your bosses, to have that prophetic uh, uh, spirit and character to be able to be speaking a word of hope and a word of encouragement and, in a sense, also a word of warning to the generation in which we live. And so, John says, I wasn't that man. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He said, I'm not that light. I'm not that man. But I've come to bear witness uh, to that light. And that's the same with you as well. We have come to bear witness. I have come to bear witness to that light. And let's be much more bold than we've ever been before. Let's not so focus on our troubles and our problems that we forget this all-important mandate of proclaiming Jesus as the coming King. He's coming a second time, and we are the ones. There's no John the Baptist. We are the prophetic voice. Don't be uh, thrown by this word prophetic. What is prophetic in the sense that I'm using it this morning? It simply is this that to be prophetic means that we are saying things and getting messages from God, getting input from the Holy Spirit of things that bring us into the mind and the heart of God for now. We're declaring God's now word. What does this generation need right now? What can I be saying in our times of huge confusion and upheaval and, and contradiction? And contention. Has there ever been a time that is more contentious than than it is right at the moment? I don't think so. You know, you talk about confusion. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Back is forwards and forwards is back. And you you just don't know whether you're Arthur or Martha. 
in the society and the stuff that they're throwing out. And of course, what God says about it is completely trivialized and sometimes outrightly rejected. And you are what God has called into this society. You and me. Isn't it interesting? As you look at this whole story, uh, you know, Scripture says, during the reign of Tiberius, I just love all of those probably a little bit more of the technicality here, but I just love all those lists of people down there in that list that we read from Luke chapter 3. Why do I love it? Because Luke was a person who gave such special attention to detail, and he named those people, and history, secular history I'm talking about, historians of the time like Josephus, bear out that those were exactly the people who were in power, during the time, exactly the religious leaders that were there, that encourages me because all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. It's divinely breathed. The word of God is inerrant and I love it when secular history backs up and confirms the things that we believe. They think we're crazy that we say that the word of God is inerrant. There's no error in it. But I love passages like that where... Dr. Luke gives attention to it and confirms the things that we hold dear as committed Christians. So, there were so many similarities and I'm gonna race through those quickly. The politicians were there during the day. The politicians were politicking. The politicians were politicking. What is that? making promises most of the time they can't keep, doing what politicians do. They're back in John's day. Leaders and rulers vying for power. The word reign is taken from the original Greek word hegemonia. It means hegemony. I'm not trying to be fancy. I had to look it up myself, so don't worry. Hegemony means just like wanting to be the top dog, wanting to control, wanting to have the authority over, like Hitler wanted and unleashed a world war in order to have hegemony over Europe. And all the ancient empires fought all those battles that they fought because they wanted hegemony. So what's my point? I have no point. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I have a point. My point is, so what is new? The same stuff is happening in our so-called, in inverted commas, I don't know what you call that in in Americanese, uh, you know, parenthesis, in parenthesis, quotations, marks, in our civilized, sophisticated, so-called society of the day. But same, 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 same what he was feeling and what he was following. And all the religious guys were doing the same things, wanting to have control over their people, etc., etc., etc. And they were the religionists. I don't call them spiritual because I don't think that they were. They had kind of lost out. They had kind of uh, become compromised. They had uh, become spiritually bereft of, of, of any spiritual uh, authority and, 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 and vigor in their faith. And so they were just left 
when Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene, they were suspicious that John the Baptist came out to see what he was saying in the wilderness, etc., etc. And so they were in a sorry state is what I'm saying. Now, not the whole church is in the sorry state today. There are pockets and people that just on fire for God and making great impact into their societies, into, into society in general. Pray, praise the Lord and thank God for that. But folk, we've got to recognize that there are many out there that are just religionists and nothing more. Uh, we have a term, and I don't mean to be derogatory in any way to anyone, but Nominal Christians, I don't know if it's used here in the United States. What does the word nominal mean? It simply means in name only. Oh, dear friend, if you like the religionists of the day who ended up conspiring in the crucifixion of Jesus, they were so off target, so filled with hatred, bitterness, and jealousy against both John and, of course, against Jesus. If you're just a nominal Christian in name only, you need to have some of that encounter of what I was speaking about later, early, earlier on. Just getting to know Jesus, letting his grace touch your life, transform you. You'll never be the same again. You'll know what the difference is between nominal and born again and filled with God's spirit and been, having got the charge from God, the supercharge of his power and his presence. Define it? I can't, I can't define it. It's kind of like invisible. It's, it's indefinable. What happens? I don't know. I'm kind of like that guy who Jesus healed and he said, I, I don't know what happened. You're asking to me what happened. All I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. And, and that's true in the, in, the, in the spiritual encounter with Jesus. We don't know. Later on, we'll find out a little bit more of how this process has happened and, and what the ongoing uh, uh, consequences are in our lives. But at that moment, you know you've passed from death into life. We can't always find the exact moment. The ex some people can. But you know, I've passed from death. I'm talking spiritual death into life with God. <laughs> it says, the word of God came. I've got five minutes, so I'm watching that. The word of God came. Where does the word of God come? Didn't come to the Tetrarchs. Didn't come to the governors. Didn't come to Caesar. It didn't come to the religious people who you would have thought they would have been the first port of call. No, it didn't come to them. It came to a man who was out into the wilderness. And I don't want to labor that too much. We could speak about that a lot. But here's the point. Where does the word of God come today? To a people who are willing to receive that word, to be proclaimers of the coming king. We don't back off. It came in a world, dear friends. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Our, our testimony is in a world that God has placed us with. We don't back off. We don't move in to become a hermit or an ascetic or a, mon monast a monasticist. What are those, those things? They are when people withdrew from society and took vows of poverty 
and chastity and silence and everything else. Jesus never did that. He was always approachable. People came to him. He, he went to the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the down and trodden and, and, and the disenfranchised of the day. Jesus went to them. And our testimony must not be to withdraw like those old systems that I'm speaking to you about in church history. And they did those things, but they were not really called to do them. We're called to be in this world that God loves and we're called to be like the Tim Tebow's of this world, winning our community for him, proclaiming Jesus is coming again. And we want to have a victory procession that will even outdo those two that we referred to earlier on. So there are... Four little messages, and I'm going to touch on those real quick that kind of summarize John's ministry and should kind of summarize, if we're going to be modern-day John the Baptist, should, should summarize our ministry. If you can just put that up on the board there. There's six little points there. Every valley shall be filled. What's that? Missing things. Valleys have big gaps in them, don't they, when you look across valleys? I'm thankful to God for the already given. I've been long enough in the church together with my wife to know that there's been some wonderful already givens. He's given some stuff, I say stuff, truths that have been fantastic, powerful, life-changing, transforming, uh, impactful. But there's also some yet-to-comes. You need to be open to the yet-to-comes. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. That speaks to me of of, of the pride and, and the arrogance. There must be that humility of spirit. There must be that willingness, yes, to have that power, but blended, dear friends, blended. If There's so many people that want prophetic power, but they're not willing to have prophetic character. They want to be that witness and that testimony, but, you know, the character will just set it aside. Crooked places made straight. There are a lot of crooked places out of there, out there, that need to be made straight. Rough ways to be made smooth. It's not plain sailing. It's not easy. You're going to come up against the opposer. That's the very, one of the very names of Satan himself. He is the opposer and he is the accuser of the brethren. Through other mouthpieces, you're going to come across that time and again. But we must have enough courage to know that in fact we are going to prevail and we're going to triumph and we're going to take the battle to the enemy and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then finally, and I'm virtually through with a minute to spare. All flesh, that means nations, people, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And I think that reinforces some of the points that I've already made about being a proclaimer and being someone who promotes Jesus and his kingdom. Both of them. Jesus and his kingdom. King and kingdom. And the glory of both. And that last verse, that last point, just confirms what I've been saying earlier. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your self-need and your family and those that surround you. 
Why? Because God's plan is so bigger than your plan. So much bigger. So much of our faith and so much of the truth, truths of the word of God we apply to us. So I want God's prosperity for me. Nothing wrong with that. I want God's faith for me. Nothing wrong with that. I want the gifts of the Holy Spirit for me. I want the presence of God for me. But we've got to see that God has a greater purpose, that he wants all of those things that he's doing in our lives to be greater than just me, for him and for his large world, for his big world. And as you do that, what has been my purpose today? And I close with this. Our purpose, my purpose has been that this ministry is intended to encourage and inspire you to be a proclaimer and a promoter of the kingdom of God wherever you are. Don't take a backward step. Be wise in how you handle it. Learn to discern the promptings of the Holy Spirit when he prompts you. And when you blend those things together, not just rush in like a bull in a china shop, but you recognize God is with me and I'm going to be filled with boldness. You know what they said to the apostles in Thessalonica, uh, um, Paul and Silas? These, they, they arrested them. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. No, they got it wrong. Those were the people that turned the world right side up. And you and I, me, number one of the, in front of the line as far as this need is concerned, we need to be people who are committed to turn this world right side up. And my goodness, is it not needed today? I'm going to ask the people just to put up on, on the screen six or seven takeaways from this ministry this morning. If you can just look at that, I'm not going to preach on that, but if you can just look at that and take that away with you this morning, I believe that is what the Spirit wanted me to share with you and what God wants you to take away from this ministry this morning. Thank you. And God bless you. We're going to just hang with us a little bit because we're going to break bread in a moment. You've been given the emblems. Our pastor's going to come and lead us in the breaking of the bread. But just before we do so, I want every eye to be closed and just, just for a minute or two. John's was a ministry of repentance. But repentance is not the whole story and does not satisfy because it leaves us with, I don't think that I can do it even if I have a heart to repent. But that's why Jesus came. That's why John pointed to Jesus in the water and said, behold the Lamb of God. Because he can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If you could do it for yourself, if repentance was enough, if just trying self-reformation, in other words, trying to make yourself better, was enough, Jesus would never have died. But because it is not enough, because you need someone to take your place, and be your substitute. 
to die in your place and then for him to give all the benefits and all the credit of what he did when he destroyed death and sin and hell and the grave and unbelief and all and every one of your sins. You need someone to take that. And Jesus took it, absorbed it all in dying a terrible death, but in order that you can be saved. Now, if there's anyone in this congregation this morning who just says, Lord, I can't become a proclaimer, I can't become a promoter of you and your kingdom like, has been, like we have been encouraged to do this morning, because I've never come to know you as my Lord and Savior. I've never had the surge of your power transform me, and I've never understood that it was your life for mine freely given, never understood it, then I want you just to raise a hand and we'll direct a prayer and we'll hand over to our pastor who is waiting to lead us. Anybody who just wants to say, yes, Lord, I will. I will give myself to you this morning. Okay, we can just pray. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you that you took my place. I don't know how the mechanics of it all works, but when I give myself to you and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, when I take what you did on the cross and I apply it to my life, there's a power surge that makes me a newborn creature. My sins are forgiven. I don't have to work my way to heaven, but I give myself wholly to you in order to welcome you in with great jubilation. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you were encouraged and uplifted by today's message. For more information about Passion Life Church, visit us online at passionlifechurch.com.